1: 18 plus But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
2: Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 31st, 2014. On this week's show, we'll look back at the weekend's action in the NCAA tournament action. and assess the unlikely Final Four of Florida, Wisconsin, Yukon, and Kentucky. Assess. <laughs> we'll then discuss the NLRB ruling, which will surely be appealed 400 times. Labor relations. Northwestern University's football players will indeed be allowed to unionize, at least before the appeal. Finally, we'll scrutinize the contract Surprise. extensions handed out to American League sluggers Miguel Cabrera and Mike Trout, the former of which has been... <laughs> It's really hard to concentrate. The former of which has been pilloried because it's too expensive, and the latter because it's too cheap, 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 cheap. Far, far, far. Join in Washington DC. It's been a while. it's been too long since we had some Favre talk. Should we just add a fourth topic? Sure. Far-f- and far and <laughs> Favre. Uh, Can we talk facets. about the jeans
0: where they talk about how it's a U-shape, not a V-shape? Isn't it just like the nice way of saying, Americans, you got a fat ass. <laughs> it's Five. a U-shape. Well, the word fat ass doesn't scan well with the
2: far <laughs> fan.
0: How about we go with U-shape?
2: <laughs> seven says the author of the books V-shape and U-shape <laughs> and Word Freak on a few things of panic. He's also the Friday Sports Correspondent for Wrangler Jeans. Talk radio. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And NPR's All Things Considered. How is it? How, is it? how uh, are you, Stefan? I'm well, Josh. With us from New York, back from his triumphant hosting duties in uh, Chicago at Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's NPR's Mike Pesca, who no longer works for NPR. Uh, yeah. He's the host of Slate's yeah. <laughs> new daily podcast. This show is off to a rip-roaring start. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going, Mike?
0: Uh, good. After a painful rodeo accident, I'm now wearing W-shaped jeans. <laughs> I don't really want to get into it that much.
3: Yeah, I think Peter Sagel, I think you may have pipped Peter Sagel. You, you know, P- it's Peter that's an Peter interesting
0: analogy that that exists. Because a few people say that, and Peter Sagel's great, and I don't want to uh, no, put my joke
2: in that. Exactly. A few people said he's never going to actually come back and I'm going to take his (laughs) job. Yeah. yeah. So that thing is one of these useful
0: myths. I mean, it's not exactly a myth. He did take a day off and then Gehrig never came out of the lineup. But just think about it logically. Like, that happens a lot. And what? You can't find another place for Pip. And Pip was slumping and the whole team was slumping. And then when people say, oh, you're the Lou Gehrig to Wally Pip, all I think of is, well, one guy died young of a horrible disease and the other guy I lived to 71 and had a nice life, but became this anecdote. Which which life would you rather have?
2: Yeah, Wally Garen, Pip.
3: Garen's life was pretty good.
2: Do you think if his name wasn't Wally Pip, that any of this would have happened? I think yeah. the, the name kind of suited his uh, his role, certainly. Like if it was if it was like,
0: George, you take it today, Lou. <laughs> if it was Peter
3: Sagel, no one yeah. would be talking about it.
2: Yeah. All right. It was bound to happen eventually, Stefan. We're down to four teams in the NCAA tournament. I have predicted. You know, 538 predicted there would be four teams left in <laughs> mm-hmm. the tournament. Yeah. Nailed it. Was Suck very, it. Suck it, critics.
0: That was kind of a hedgehog move on their part, but yes, <laughs> they did predict it.
2: Uh, there's a one seed Florida, two seed Wisconsin, seven seed Connecticut, an eight seed Kentucky. Very unlikely Final Four. Only uh, 612 of the $11 million in ESPN's contest got it. That being said... A lot fewer people got the Final Four last year when Wichita State was in it. But let's uh, frame this another way. You've got Florida. You've got the only two teams that beat Florida during the regular season. And you've got a team that's lost to Florida three times in the last month and a half. Uh, The favorite, naturally, is Florida, if you've noticed a theme there. They're number one in Ken Palm's rankings. Uh, Nate Silver and Crew at 538, as just alluded to. Give them a 38% chance to win it all by beating UConn and then taking down the Kentucky-Wisconsin winner. Um, So after all that preamble on Florida, I think we should start by talking about Kentucky, which has played three amazing games in a row, beat three of last year's Final Four teams, Wichita State, Louisville, Michigan, uh, against Michigan on Sunday. Aaron Harrison made a three uh, to break a 72-all tie with two seconds to go. Uh, John Calipari's third Final Four in four years. This time they did it with seven freshmen and one sophomore playing on Sunday, Mike. Um yeah. what say you about the Wildcats?
0: It tells me that much of the angster ire about the state of college basketball or ethics is all bullshit just uh, premised on rivals of a team and you know their perception of how good their rivalry is going to do like when Kentucky won with uh, mostly freshmen that was such a huge issue because they were good from wire to wire and all their rivals felt you know that they South Carolina would rather win and Alabama would rather win and all the fans of those teams were like this isn't fair but now that Kentucky kind of snuck in and didn't have such a good year like most of that stuff is not getting said maybe it's because it's the second time around but there's far less hand-wringing and It's the same thing. In fact, there's more freshmen contributing to the team this year. So shouldn't there be just as much? Oh, Kentucky's done it again. No, because now they're an eight seed and now they're seen as an underdog because they underperformed during the season. Absolutely ridiculous. Well, that's the stuff that Kalapari and the Wildcats can't control. The stuff they can control, they have been controlling. They've been playing like every bit the great team that was, you know, a preseason top ranked team. And also, Tell me again why Kalapari can't coach, because it seems like he could coach. It seems like he went head-to-head with Rick Pitino. I'm not going to say out-coached him, but absolutely did everything he needed to do to put his players in the chance to win. And, you know, when he stemmed that tide in the beginning, did he stem it? I don't know. Maybe you could say that in the beginning of the Louisville game when they went down, what was it, like 15-2 to or 15-3, to and he burned through almost a Great his, timeout. Great yeah, timeouts. Yeah, great timeouts. But still, like— It would have been better not to go down by that much, but it still does show me that, you know, he could rally his guys and get to his guys and also, you know, change his game plan up a bit, which he did. So credit to Kalapari for getting these immensely talented freshmen to do his bidding.
2: I wanted to kind of push back a little bit on the Kalapari has coached them up thing, which I've heard a lot. I think it's true certainly true that they're playing a lot better, and I think coaching has something to do with that. But the reason I was a little down on Kentucky going to the tournament was that their shooting during the season was really poor. Um, awesome. The Harrison twins, in particular, were just not great shooters. and It was really hampering the team. If you have twins who can't shoot, that's twice as bad as just having <laughs> one right. guy who can't shoot. Because right. um, like, the defense doesn't know who to take, but it doesn't matter because neither <laughs> can make. Exactly. It's, I saw
3: them switch jerseys. In, during the first half, very confusing.
2: Right. If one of them can shoot, you're right. It would
0: be
3: very confusing for the defense.
0: And don't twins usually have, like, number 54 and 45? Isn't that classic twin <laughs>
3: nomenclature? Yeah, five. Well, five and five are kind of mirror images, so, you know, yeah. reverse oh, good point. images. Okay,
2: yeah, yeah. so um, Kentucky going into the tournament is ranked way down low, like in the 200s in three-point shooting. They shot something <laughs> like 32% during the SEC. It's, it was very poor. Um, in the last three games that they've won, they've shot 46% from three. Um, Harrison made four. Aaron Harrison um, in the second half. Again, not a great shooter during the regular season. James Young, who is actually a pretty good shooter, has been making a huge amount of them. And it's very similar to Wichita State in the tournament last year. I looked it up, and when they went on their great three-game run in the middle of the tournament last year, they shot 45%, up from 34% during the regular season. Um, Was that great coaching by Greg Marshall? to make his team shoot better. I think a lot of success in the tournament depends on which team is making its three-pointers. And so I think we maybe should not give Kalapari credit for that particular facet. But I think that's the reason that they've won all of these close games.
3: And also, let's not forget that these seem to be pretty evenly matched teams. I mean, we've seen a run of five or six terrific Evenly matched games that have come down to the final 20 minutes, and by the final 20 minutes, I mean the last minute, of course, (laughs) Um, and a lot of monitor watching. Very important to see the refs watching the monitor. I don't know who it was. I think it might have been Brian Phillips. Somebody tweeted that his favorite thing about the final minute of these games is when you get to see a shot of the refs watching the refs on the monitor. That's a great shot.
2: Right, a little recursion there, where you get the ref watching the ref, yeah, watching the ref, and maybe like
0: watching me watching the refs pulling my hair out.
2: Right, maybe twenty screens in inside that monitor. There's a yeah. like a definitive view.
3: There it's was actually a- happening in two thousand years in the future, yeah. which is something I learned from uh, rewatching Planet of the Apes three over the weekend. We watched <laughs> all f- the first three Planet of the Apes with my daughter.
0: On, uh, you're right, on screen 17, you see who, who the ball went off of. It went I off just off of go Dr. off on Zayas, that, by actually. the way? I know I did it. I know I did it last week. Just give me a second to go off on that. Okay, I know that to the human brain, it seems like the stuff that happens in the last minute is extra important. And in some sports, it is. Like, you know, in football, they'll, they'll not give away a drive, but you might play much more conservatively, and, like, you have this totally different strategy in the last couple minutes. And, you know, strategy changes. There's something called a two-minute drive. Just from a totally logical perspective... Call me uh, extra brainy on this one. But a possession that happens with nine minutes to go versus a possession that happens 30 seconds ago, why is the 30 seconds to go that much more important? It seems much more important, but it's not. I would absolutely trade any three pointer in the first half for any two pointer in the second half if I'm the offense. Well, it's all situational. Am I wrong about that?
3: Everything is just based on situation. So if the score is a two point game or a three point game or a five point game, strategy does change in the last minute. And that's why the importance of it appears to be heightened because. There's only 30 seconds to go but in the game. But my
0: only point is it ap- it only appears to be heightened. Only appears. There is no more importance on this third possession of the second half than the third to last possession. Or, or is there a logical case that the third to, to last possession really does deserve this extra scrutiny?
2: Well, no, I think the point that Stefan's making is a good one is that basketball and football, too, they just transform into an entirely different sport in the last minute or two of a close game. It's, it's like in football, you hear people say, oh, they just went down the field and just scored so quickly. Why can't they do that the whole game? Or in basketball, when you're just fouling and shooting threes and you're just going back and forth every five seconds, like you don't actually do that with nine minutes to go, um, and there are um, I
0: think football transforms I think it's if you're not fouling, I mean a lot of these games were just you know going possession for possession, and there wasn't that much of a game plan change uh in the second to last possession versus the second possession in the half
2: well, just the point is that coaches um treat the game differently, and there are specific rules like in football if you go out of bounds in the last couple minutes of the half, the clock stops. Right, um, right. There, there are different...
0: Football, I'm, I'm giving you football. I'm talking about basketball, college basketball. Okay. okay. Nah, All right,
2: fine. Nah. So one thing that I actually uh, appreciated, the, the Arizona-Wisconsin game, there was a clock stoppage with about two seconds left. They looked at this replay for about five, five min- minutes. Five minutes. Five um, minutes which I fast-forwarded through on the DVR, but it must have been frustrating to people who didn't record the game. And they eventually decided that Arizona was going to get the ball at a not very definitive view. They decided it went off the Wisconsin guy's fingertips. But it was with six seconds to go when they called the offensive foul on uh, Nick Johnson of Arizona for for pushing off. And the same thing had happened in the Tennessee-Michigan game where they called the Tennessee guy for a charge with five seconds to go. And I was thinking about all this, again, during the Michigan-Kentucky game when uh, with a little bit more than a minute to go, Julius Randle just plowed over Glenn Robinson and Glenn Robinson went sprawling out and the referees did nothing. And we're not talking about it today. And that's a really good thing. I thought that the refs did a good job. You know, I don't agree with the sentiment that you should call the game differently in the last minute. If it's a foul, like Mike has been saying, if it's a foul with nine minutes to go, it should be a foul with a minute to go. But I feel like the defense tries to, you know, urge on the refs to make these calls rather than play solid defense with less than a minute to go. The defensive guy wasn't rewarded for flopping. The offensive guy wasn't rewarded by slightly dipping a shoulder. It seemed like it should have been no call, and it was, and it led to a better ending.
0: Uh, although in the Tennessee game, I do have to say, it, this was like that Carolina game where there was so much faux controversy over a play that wouldn't have mattered. You know, if you look at that play, I think it was Stokes who was driving, who, maybe because he's wearing an orange headband, but just looks like Car- Carmelo Anthony to me. Anyway, <laughs> he was driving, and uh, he gets called for the foul, but if the foul wasn't made, he totally lost the ball he on the play. He got stripped. Like, the game was over anyway. Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. But that doesn't take anything away from Josh's point, which is do players behave differently? And again, end of the game. This is this goes into your into the same argument, Mike. Does the fact that there are 30 seconds or 5 seconds to go in a game affect not only how the referees call the game, but how the coaches coach the game and how the players play the game? And I think the psychology of all of that gets rolled into how we view competitions and how we perform under stress and how we perform in what are perceived to be critical moments because as you said, they are perceived to be more critical for the simple reason that there's only a few seconds to go. The the game is almost over. We have to do something.
2: Well, this also falls into a couple of other things I took notes on, which are if you went into the tournament, this is not ex post facto. Before the tournament, if you're like, who are the most clutch players in college basketball this year? You would have said Shabazz Napier, who has been winning games for the last couple of years, did it against Florida earlier this (laughs) year, um, has done it a whole bunch of times during the conference season. And he made a whole bunch of clutch shots uh, to send him to the final four of Michigan State. And the other guy, Scotty Wilbekin, who didn't score that many points for Florida this year, but was named SEC Player of the Year in large part because he makes big shots, makes three pointers when the clock runs down, makes kind of crazy layups in the lane. And he did that the last couple games too. And, you know, hero ball is something that's derided often in the NBA. Kobe Bryant just hogging the ball and taking the last shot. But this gets to the point that we've been hammering on here is that players play differently in close games. They play differently in late uh, clock situations. And, you know, Wilbican and Napier are two guys who've played differently. Their teams have deferred to to them and they've actually succeeded at it. And that's on large measure, why their teams are in the Final Four.
3: Can we talk for a minute about uh, UConn making the Final Four? They were banned from the tournament last year because of academic violations. The Their APR wasn't up to the NCAA standard, right, Josh?
2: Right. They didn't cheat, so it wasn't a violation in that sense. It's that their academic progress rating, Hopefully. which is a measure of how many guys are graduating at what rate, was not up to snuff. And the NCAA actually made them sit out of the tournament. A bunch of players, uh, Alex Oriaki, transferred to Missouri. Uh, they had a one-time opportunity to transfer and not sit out a year. But um, guys like Napier, uh, Ryan Boatwright decided to stay at UConn and have to sit out the tournament last year. And now, I guess this article is making the point that their decision to stay has been rewarded.
3: This article by Juliet Maser in the New York Times on Monday had a time when top college players often head to the NBA after just a year or two. Shabazz Napier is a senior who has stuck with Connecticut through some trying times. So we're celebrating Shabazz Napier for staying in school and making it seem like this is the only proper decision. I mean, we the, the narrative in college sports is just so absurd at this point. You know, Shabazz Napier made a decision based on what was probably best for him, a six-foot point guard who probably might have been a second-round draft pick last year or the year before, who decides to stay in college because, you know, he wants to get his degree, which is great, and he's a good student, apparently, and he's fulfilling a parental dream for his mom. But
2: He seems like a guy who's just built to succeed in college basketball. He's like a Scotty reynolds or
3: something like that. So So we're creating this false false choice that it was Shabazz Napier was choosing college over the NBA. Let's get our let's be honest about our narratives here. College basketball is great for the vast majority of 18 to 23 year olds who are participating in the sport. It is not so great for a small, small minority of athletes who have the ability to get paid and succeed at a higher level sooner. Shabazz Napier was doing some right things, yes, staying in school is great. Getting your degree, great. But he was probably doing it at the same time because there was a realization that that his abilities didn't transfer to the NBA immediately.
0: He had to be his own GM uh, in charge of his own minor league career. And he made the right call as a GM.
2: Okay, last point. One of the matchups in the Final Four is Wisconsin-Kentucky, where you've got the team of Shabazz Napier. It's a lot of guys who've stayed in school uh, for many a year uh, versus Kentucky with all the freshmen. Now that Willie Colley Stein is hurt. Morality play. It's a greater uh, percentage of freshmen. And I wanted to talk about the morality play aspect because I fear that this week it's going to be Bo Ryan doing things the right way, his team doing things the right way, and John Calipari in Kentucky doing things the wrong way. Fundamentals. But I see Bo Ryan as somebody who is a relic in some good ways. I'm like— his teams play a kind of basketball that's very pleasing to watch they're you know good at what they do Picket but fans. i but i see him as a relic in a wrong way as well that he is all about the program in a way that i think is not justified or appropriate circa 2014 when i wrote about transfers uh, last year he was one of the coaches who came in for special scorn for me because he banned one of his players from transferring within the Big Ten and within, like, a huge number of other schools. And then when called on it, was just so dismissive and sarcastic. Like, why is this an issue? Um, You know, why am I getting called out for this? Everyone does it. You know, how dare this guy leave his teammates? Um, You know, this from a guy who had a long-term deal and left it in the middle to go coach at Wisconsin. Um, And Calipari is definitely more about the players than about the program. He encourages his players to leave for the NBA. He allowed Kyle Wil- Wilter to transfer with no restrictions on where he went. You know, Kyle is not perfect. He's done a lot of, you know, messed up things and has run off players from his program. But if we're looking at this as a morality play, then I'd encourage you not to go in for the simple Wisconsin is better and more moral than Kentucky.
0: Yeah, Bo Ryan just acted like what he is, but what you're not supposed to acknowledge, which is the CEO of a small corporation and he didn't want a competitor to get an asset. And that's not the oh he's a great teacher thing that we always say, but Bo Ryan was being uh, appropriately selfish and you're right, call him out
2: for that. And he is a good basketball coach, he's a great basketball coach, I but seems like to have no qualms, calling... seems to have no qualms about anything that's going on in C A, and that doesn't really make him unusual, but I just don't think we should single him out as a paragon.
0: I do want to say that your idea of, though, naming the team, uh, like uh, the team sometimes have a second nickname, Rambling Wreck, Ryan's Wrong Way Relics, I like that idea.
2: (laughs) Let's do it. Our sponsor this week is Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you can get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free Uh, this week. I am happy to recommend uh, Dan Jenkins' new memoir, It's actually a semi-memoir, he calls it. His own self, a semi-memoir. It's narrated by Henry Strozier. Ten hours of solid Jenkins listening. It's unabridged. Brian Curtis, our pal over at Grantland, did a great uh, profile of Jenkins in the last few weeks, which I would encourage you to read as well. uh, If you're a fan of the man's writing, I would imagine that you would want to pick this up. It's a treat for your ears. And thanks to Audible's great offer for hang-up listeners. If you're in the United States, you never tried Audible before, you can get one free audiobook if you sign up for a free thirty day trial. You can get that audiobook and the trial, which is free. By signing up at audiblepodcast dot slash hang up, that's audiblepodcast dot com slash hang up. So last week, a regional office of the National Labor Relations Board ruled the Northwestern University football players are employees that they have the right to unionize. This was unexpected. I guess I read after the fact that it was unexpected. I hadn't known whether it was expected or unexpected. But according to smart legal type people, Michael McCann, Lester Munson, they said it was unexpected, so it was unexpected. Now it has to go to the full NLRB. Congress might get involved. Who knows uh, what's going to happen? But the ruling did, interestingly, enshrine the idea that college athletes are not, students primarily. They're not students first, that they work 40 to 50 hours a week, um, that schools make a huge amount of revenue off of them. The 24-page ruling seemed like it went to great pains to establish everything the college athletes had to do, all of the demands on their time, as if it was anticipating an appeal or a challenge down the line. Uh, Stefan, what did you think of the ruling? And do you have any sense of how uh, this could change things in the short
3: term. Let's be clear about how limited this ruling is. I mean, we're talking about football players and we're talking about football players at one private university. This couldn't be applied to public universities. I don't think this could be applied to other teams, even basketball. And when we talk about what the benefits are here, you know, the Pandora's box, according to Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post, is how difficult it would be and how onerous this would wind up being on college athletes and college athletic departments were athletes allowed to unionize and, in the course of unionizing, request, negotiate, and be granted salaries, Uh, that there would be tax considerations, that there would be legal considerations, that there would be ethical considerations, um, that there would be practical considerations at universities. But the the thing that I think we're forgetting is that this doesn't have to be this grand, broad interpretation or outcome. It's very conceivable. And Ramogi Huma, the head of the group that has been around for about a decade, that's been working to achieve better uh, working conditions and rights for college athletes and Kane Coulter, the former Northwestern you mean quarterback. studenting conditions. I, I'm sorry. I misspoke. <laughs> Student and Conditions, yes. And Kane Coulter, the former Northwestern quarterback, they've spoken about their goals, not in terms of getting a slice of the multibillion-dollar revenue stream that the NCAA has, but in much more limited terms, better health insurance, better treatment regarding scholarships, better work conditions for athletes in general. So I think we're getting way, 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 way ahead of ourselves in terms of how dramatic this ruling could be for college sports.
2: But you'd have to understand how the NCAA would see this as the first step in dismantling a system that they've built for so many years. So, you know, the NCAA statement was basically, we're getting there. Like, we don't need to dismantle everything that, you know, college sports works well for millions of, of student athletes. And, you know, this is way too rash. So it seems like, you know, with this and with the O'Bannon case and with all the other lawsuits. They're just, you know, plugging holes in many, many different dikes, Um, Mike. So what did you uh, take away from this ruling and, you know, how significant do you think it could be?
0: Yeah, I think it could be significant. And here's why. Even though most of the big time colleges are in southern states, right to work states, states that aren't union friendly, there is enough colleges, public universities in states where organizing is permissible in a state university. So once you factor them all in, it's not just the couple of private schools. And even that, even Vanderbilt, Stanford, Northwestern, you name the other private schools that play in the big conferences, even that would be problematic for the NCAA because there are rules that say, you know, one group of student athletes couldn't get a benefit that others could. And then you add the, you know, schools from states like, you know, Penn State and schools from states that are more friendly to unions. I think it would create a situation where the NCAA couldn't allow a few schools to have better benefits or a few student athletes, as they call it, to have better benefits. Now, I don't know what it means for women athletes, and I don't know what it means for basketball players, and I don't know what it means for, you know, non-revenue generating sports athletes. But it does seem fairly significant to me, and it does seem like the NCAA is taking it fairly significant. And, you know, in remarks, Mark Emmert of the NCAA just basically didn't address any of the issues raised and said, yeah, we're going to take this. And if we have to take
3: it to the Supreme Court, that's fine. They're going to be going to the Supreme Court a lot, I think, in the next decade or two. Um, you know, when you add the the O'Bannon case, which once Compensation for players from licensing agreements, video games, other usage of players' likenesses, and add the probably potentially the most significant lawsuit filed by Jeff Kessler, the lawyer who has represented major league, professional sports league unions, um, on filing an antitrust lawsuit on, a gr- on behalf of a group of college basketball and football players saying that that the NCAA's unlawfully capped compensation. I mean, that seems to me to be as big a threat here. And what you have is the building blocks toward change. And whether that change comes via lawsuit or whether it comes via negotiation, something is going to change because the threats to the NCAA and the potential legal and public hurdles are going to be huge.
2: I've got two thoughts on what you guys were saying. A lot of the opposition that we're seeing from Sally Jenkins in the Post and other people is just to the fact that this opens a can of worms. And it's just a lot simpler and neater if the can of worms is closed. In a system where, you know, the athletes don't get paid, it is a lot simpler, but it's also like wrong and bad. And so, you know, the argument being, well, it's going to be so hard to figure out you know, right. who gets paid and, you know, when and will it be legal? It's and like, what about yes, it is complicated, but it also needs to get sorted out. That's not a reason not to do anything. I also think that, again, in Sally's piece and elsewhere, there's either just an overarching dislike and distrust of unions that's coloring the coverage and also just a misunderstanding of what it is that unions do or what unions are <laughs> supposed to do. Unions have never at least in modern times, been less popular in America. So this is kind of an odd time to, you know, tether the, you know, granting of rights to college athletes to this idea that unions are the right way to do that. There's going to be um, necessarily a kind of distaste for that just because nobody likes unions the way they used to.
3: It's also, Josh, the, the juxtaposition of this fear of change with something that we really like, Which is watching these young athletes compete in this great made for television spectacle. There is genuine emotion there's genuine love for the jersey, there's genuine love for alma mater, I mean those are all great things that we have enshrined as part of our sports and cultural heritages and when you see something like this, it becomes an automatic threat to the status quo, a threat to something that we adore and we can't imagine it being the same without it. A lot of the criticism ends up being, oh my god if these guys are paid mercenaries well why should I care what jersey they 're wearing or what will their true connection be to Kentucky or Wisconsin or Florida, if I know that oh my god they 're making sixty or seventy thousand extra dollars or a hundred thousand extra dollars a year or a million extra dollars a year if they 're playing for one of the top football or basketball teams so
0: sally 's piece I thought, and the people are who are citing it over and over it 's because it was the best the best put together argument. It had a lot of the discontents with this ruling summarized uh, in one column. It was the best version of that argument. But here's the huge thing that it gets wrong. What it sort of does is, and I don't think it does it dishonestly, but it picks apart a lot of the details. It picks apart a lot of the kind of tertiary considerations. And the huge overall Fact of the matter is that there is a principle that when there is an enterprise that is generating billions of dollars, the primary engines of that generation of money should be fairly compensated. And you can't argue with that. Like, you can't argue with that by saying, well, what about... The women's lacrosse players. No, we have to keep our mind on the fact that when there is an enterprise making so much money, and that's significant because I don't think this ruling happens in the 70s or 80s when the contract, the TV contract for the bowls and the TV contract for basketball was big, but it was nowhere near what it is. And you could do the ca- also tuition was uh, less expensive, but it didn't seem that apparent that this huge injustice was going on. There is a huge injustice going on, and it's sort of. Like a country that's ruled by a dictator. Yes, when you go to a democracy, there's gonna be a ton of other details that you have to answer. You know, shall we elect the judges? How informed will the electorate be? You gotta handle all that. And even if that thing, look, we're going to a democracy, I could write a great column and say, here's the problem. You know, dictatorships are a little bit cleaner, and you're gonna have to answer all these questions about when you go to a democracy, you still have to go to the democracy. In this case, you still have to somewhat fairly compensate the primary engines of a billion-dollar, $16 billion industry. And
3: it's not fair or okay to argue, as Sally and Tom Izzo, the head coach of Michigan State, did in Sally's column, that athletes, quote, enroll at their institutions to mature, that they're already being compensated. And, hey, we're, we're ignoring the fact that they are better served by staying longer in school and gaining this experience by being coached by Billy Donovan or Bo Ryan rather than going to the NBA. Sally asked a rhetorical question in her piece, would Kwame Brown truly have been exploited by spending a couple of years on the Florida campus under the tutelage of Billy Donovan? As our wonderful intern Casey Butterly pointed out, Kwame Brown made $63 million in 13 years in the NBA. He was not (laughs) ill-served by the NBA Players Association. He
2: can can be tootled uh, many times over. That buys a lot of private tutelage. It it does. (laughs) So back to my point about the unions. Before unions existed, you had things like the triangle shirtwaist fire, like, you know, these horrible conditions, people dying in fires. It's not exactly Mm -hmm. the same. But I do want to make an analogy that the NCA is just an ongoing triangle shirtwaist fire for the mm-hmm. last 100 years. <laughs> Something needs to be done. It's like the Centralia coal fire of... Uh, Triangle shirtwaist fires. I think you could compare them to the
0: Pinkertons and not raise the uh, ire of
2: a lot of Jewish women jumping out of eighth-story buildings. But no, you
0: do. You do your analogy how you want to do
2: your analogy. I will. I think it's been long enough that the fact that that's a really bad analogy. I think it's just history now. So we don't. We don't have to. Uh, not too soon. We don't have to focus on the detail. We don't have to focus on the details. But it's also not. It's not like the status quo is really working. And I don't think um, Sally Jenkins or anybody else would tell you with a straight face that the status quo is working. You know, there've been a lot of stories about the North Carolina academic scandal. And if the idea is that, um, you know, we should focus on these football and basketball players as students, and that that's the most important thing, that that's the benefit they're getting, um, you know, that's clearly not happening, at least in many cases. And so I don't know how you could Say that something doesn't need to be changed in that end, even if you don't want anything else to, to be fixed. It's just not
3: working. The other point that Sally makes that's kind of absurd is that she kind of suggests that the athletes are greedy, that it's the athletes, the Northwestern athletes in particular, that want something unreasonable, that they should be grateful for their scholarships and the coaching and the weight room and the training Well, Pat Fitzgerald
2: makes more than uh, $2 million a year. So his hourly rate for coaching, you know, that they're getting for free – It's just off the charts. What a great deal.
3: Think about all the maturation and tutelage that could (laughs) buy. They're developing emotionally, intellectually, and physically. And that's all the school owes them, no matter how much revenue is generated by Johnny Manziel at Texas Uh, A&M. Let's move on. Let's move on. In 2012 and
2: 2013, Miguel Cabrera and Mike Trout finished first and second in American League MVP voting, in that order. This past week, both players signed multi-year contract extensions. And again, Cabrera came out the winner. Speaking of money, let's uh, get into some contract figures. The 30-year-old Cabrera, soon to be 31, got 10 years and $292 million on top of his current deal. This will kick in in a couple years. Uh, The Tigers made him the highest-paid athlete in uh, baseball history. Meanwhile, the 22-year-old Trout had to settle for a mere six years, $144.5 million. uh, To say that Cabrera's contract has been ridiculed probably uh, would not be strong enough. Yahoo's Jeff Passan says it could be the biggest contract mistake in baseball history. Grantland's Jonah Carey says it's unconscionable and indefensible. While a sports writer I just made up said it could disturb Earth's orbit and send the planet hurtling directly into the sun. On the other side, Trout's agent has been defending himself against criticism that his client did not get paid enough. Again, we come to the morality of money, big money. Mike, what do you make of these contracts and the commentary about them?
0: Yeah, well, uh, they're right. And like a lot of things that are right, you have to outdo your neighbor by making earth to the sun uh, analogies. So yeah, so I, well, uh, yes. Yeah, you win. Fake sports writer takes for the win. So the Cabrera thing is just so terrible for Detroit. And I don't know that it goes beyond there. So that's maybe perhaps interesting point I would make that it seems to be a uh, double barrel argument that people make, which is the Cabrera tra- contract is terrible. And of course it is because you know if you look where Pujols was at in his age he was doing better than Cabrera was and he fell apart and they're basically they're guaranteeing that the last four or five years of that contract you're going to be paying a guy thirty million who will be worth you know if you're lucky ten but the other argument is and this will raise the bar for everyone else and this will drive other contracts up and this will make your favorite player on your favorite team somehow harder to keep and I don't think that's true I think that this contract can just be an outlier and someone could point to it and then everyone else could say, yeah, and that was the worst contract ever. I mean, I don't know why Detroit didn't point to the Ryan Howard contract and point to the Albert Pujols contract and say, and those were terrible contracts, and therefore we've learned not to take sluggers in their 30s and give them 10-year deals, but they didn't do that. So if another team wants to be idiotic, then another team wants to be idiotic. It doesn't mean your team has to be idiotic, and it also, in fact, means if you root for a team, you, you perhaps want them to be a smart team, that's an opportunity, not being idiotic Is actually an advantage. So everyone else who's a competitor with Detroit will say, all right, they locked up Cabrera for a couple years, though we didn't really think he was going. So in four years, they're going to have this huge lead weight on their contract. So don't worry about your team. Just say, huh, the Angels shot themselves in the foot with Hamilton and Pujols. The Tigers are shooting themselves in the foot. Pretty, you know, the Yankees usually shoot themselves in the foot. Pretty soon, there'll only be seven teams who could plausibly compete in the AL because they don't have millstones around their neck.
3: You understand, of course, that the Yankees really don't shoot themselves in the foot because they have enough revenue to to pay 300 or 350 million dollars in salaries on an annual basis. Baseball has never been richer. Baseball's national television deals were just re-upped, and they are double the size of the previous television deals. Local television contracts are astronomical compared to where they were 5, 10, certainly 15 or 20 years ago.
2: And Uh, the Tigers are going to be able to renegotiate a new local TV deal in 2017 when Cabrera presumably will still retain most of his value.
3: Mike Illich is an 84-year-old owner who would like to win a World Series. The team has Sufficient revenue to spend this on Miguel Cabrera. Part of Dave Dombrowski, the general manager's thinking, has to be that, yeah, this looks bad now. And when he's 38, 39, 40, you know, his production is going to go down. He's locking in these early to middle years between 31 and 36 And keeping his fingers crossed, based on what he knows about his player, that he will perform at a level that is close to where he has been performing for the last two or three seasons. I'm sure Dave Dombrowski is factoring in a decline. This is not a, in fact, this is one of the smartest general managers in baseball.
2: Well, all of them are equally smart. None of them have been fired in two and a half years. Correct. Mm
3: -hmm. So the Tigers are factoring in that they can afford this, they like this guy. And they're factoring in that contracts in baseball will continue to escalate at a level that will make this appear reasonable and not be a millstone in years 8, 9, and 10.
2: This is sort of like um, – here's Josh Levine analogy, theater again. It's like just pumping greenhouse gases into the environment and just leaving it to your children to deal with the consequences. Maybe there will be some sort of geoengineering solution to – wipe uh, Miguel
0: Cabrera's wipe 30 contract. 30
3: pounds of fat off of Miguel Cabrera's midsection. Exactly. Or perhaps I could, a
0: self-proclaimed prominent MIT scientist will say Miguel Cabrera actually only gets paid $4 million.
2: <laughs> I, could, I can ably, I think, argue all sides of this issue. And I will, because I think it's more interesting to talk about why the Tigers might have done this. Um, I'll take that side. And I think that Stefan is right. Um, number one, they had to extend... Cabrera. People are saying, oh, he wasn't going to be a free agent for another couple of years. Dave Cameron of Fangraphs had data that shows that only one out of 30 players of this caliber who were not extended came out to be a free agent, re-signed with their original team. Two so, years is
3: the new one year.
2: So let's assume that the Tigers had to do this. Dombrowski's like, yeah, I would have liked to have signed him for five years for like Mike Trout money, but he wasn't going to take that. And so um, you have to tack on this extra amount. Maybe the Tigers overpaid... You know, maybe they could have gotten him for, you know, eight years and something less than $292 million. But I think Mike Illich is 84, like Seven said. He wants to win a World Series. You know, people talk about it being a millstone around the team. There's no salary cap in baseball. The value of franchises is going like up 600% in the last however many years. I can't remember the time span, but it's it's not a very long time span. Team is worth a billion dollars. Um, rich dude wants to spend his money. I don't really see you know why it's unconscionable. Um, it might be a bad contract for the team. I just don't understand why it's a m- sort of moral panic around it.
0: I would just say that if you judge it by the rich dude wants to spend his money, yeah. If you judge it by the you know generally accepted somewhere north of uh, $6 million price per win above replacement and how long Cabrera will play and compare it to other contracts of guys in a similar situation, there's almost no chance he's going to come close to making back the money on that contract. And if the overriding principles, rich dude wants to spend money, then that won't affect Detroit going forward. But look at what's happened to the Phillies. So a Detroit fan could say to themselves, oh, maybe we'll be in a position where we have all these uh, extra contracts on the books and, you know, future ownership post-Illich. I I don't, you know, I don't want to even
2: go there. Well, the Phillies have a World Series and, you know, maybe the Tigers winning a World Series, which Illich probably correctly assumed they couldn't do in the next two or three years. Without Cabrera, maybe that's worth $300 million to an 84-year-old who's worth multiple billions of dollars.
0: Right. But if we have statistics and we have ways of uh, judging a player and judging their value against each other, we could say, you know, Kershaw's contract, if you look at how good other pitchers are at his place in history and how much, you know, the majority of guys who have done what he's done at this age have been, you know, perennial all-stars. A bunch of them have been Hall of Famers. Like, there's a justification for his contract. So that's good. I like that argument. That contains a set of logic. Then if we take that logic, put it on Cabrera, it doesn't work, but then if we superimpose the rich dude wants to spend his money thing, yeah, it's sort of like a little bit of magical thinking all bets are off. Why even buy thinking of things critically if we have the rich dude wants to spend his money. Art. But I think
3: we can do both. We can think critically about whether... Just miguel just did Cr- both right here in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Um, okay. With Mike Trout, on one side, um, you have people arguing that the Angels are getting an incredible deal on this. It's hard for us to fathom the idea that somebody getting six years, $144 million um, is giving the team a bargain. But that's definitely the case here. Again, if you look at Mike Pesca's beloved statistics, um, they're getting uh, to buy out three of Trout's free agent years. So if Trout went through arbitration for the next three years, he'd get a lot of money—not um, 144 million—but he'd get you know at least 20 million a year for three years, and then he'd be a free agent at 25, and he would make Cabrera's contract you know now the richest look minuscule by comparison. You know, 10 years, God knows how much—400 million dollars. Um, you know to. Lock him up. So the Angels are getting to buy out three of those hyper expensive years for way less money. Trout is getting, you know, enough money to buy a planet, perhaps a planet that will hurtle into the sun, but a planet nonetheless. He'll have security. He'll never have to worry about a thing again. But will he have maturity and tutelage? He he can buy Kwame Brown tutelage if he wants to. You know when a player gets security, it necessarily means that the team is getting a bargain. Um, So did they meet in the middle? Trout's agent thinks that they did and that both sides got a good deal. What do you think, Stefan?
3: I think this is the kind of contract that fans should be applauding. You know, it seems logical for the team. Josh is a fan. I didn't know Josh was a baseball fan. It makes economic sense for the team. It makes fiscal sense for the player. It reduces risk on both sides because it locks in security for the team. They know that they will have this guy for six years. They can budget and sign other players accordingly it locks in security for Mike Trout it's a huge amount of money maybe it's not quite to market value and we don't know what Mike Trout's market value is going to be in 3 years when he or 3 or 4 years when he would have become a free agent for the first time and critically for Trout he becomes a free agent when he's 29 which is a peak earnings time in a baseball player's career so he will have the opportunity to lock in a long hugely Huge, huge, (laughs) huge contract.
0: And this is a trend among the good teams. And even though um, maybe the Angels throw a lot of money around uh, for guys like Hamilton and uh, some of their pitchers, pool holes don't work out you know, Evan Longoria signed a similar contract, David Wright signed a similar contract, like a young guy who's been with an organization their whole life, who sort of gives his team a bit of a discount. And if they really wanted to push it on the free agent market, especially in a couple of years, they probably could. And if all they cared about was, you know, f- maximizing future earnings, they could do that. But when you consider everything, and when you consider the fact that this is enough money to be, So fine in life and so wonderfully set up for you and generations and not to have to worry about it. It makes a lot of sense. And the smart teams are doing it. And I think the smart players are
3: taking it. But it's not what's fine in life. It's about market value. And that's how we perceive players. And that's how we should perceive players. If Mike Trout's worth $50 million a year, as Dave Cameron on Fangraphs posits, when he becomes a free agent then he is taking a discount and that as a as a player or as an agent or as a union that is something that you should be concerned about yes. d- deflating the value of all players in the sport i also think but that we in should... all
0: those cases i just want to point out that given the vagaries of injury there was a consideration to take the money absolutely
2: the i just want to point out that we should be very careful about assigning moral value to taking Less money. Um, And I think that that weighs on players. We shouldn't be concerned that it weighs on players the same way, like, you know, it weighs on someone who can't afford their mortgage. But, you know, there was an article recently about Peyton Manning not wanting to be paid more than Tom Brady. I think probably we could guess that Trout will be criticized for taking whatever huge free agent contract that he gets. And, you know, it hasn't worked out for people who've taken a huge amount of money um, in terms of how they're perceived by the public. Um, a lot of it is just because you, when you take that huge amount of money, you're entering the decline phase in your career. But I think there just is a distaste that people have for athletes to make a huge amount of money. And my problem with that is that nobody cares how much money Artie Marino, the Angels owner, makes every year. Nobody cares how much money Mike Illich makes. And these guys are way richer than the We're athletes. selling pizza. And, you know... If Mike Trout makes less, that means that Artie Moreno makes more. and Nobody's calling Artie Moreno greedy for signing, you know, a team-friendly deal. Nobody's calling Mike Illich greedy for having, you know, many billions of dollars. But we just feel more comfortable saying that
3: about athletes because they're playing a game. Yeah, those college athletes, they're so greedy. They want medical care.
0: Well, the thing is, when an athlete, athletes will get criticized for their contract if they're, you know, like Steve Nash or... Josh Hamilton when they're not doing well but the thing is they're going to get criticized for something when they're not doing well so then we cast about other than the fact that you're stinking it up for my team oh you're also costing my team money but why should they really care that much about the opinions of people they don't care about i mean that's what we saw with steve nash right Mike? isn't that what we saw with steve nash that was the that's what right and so i agree with your point like the whole yeah owners do skate on this i don't want to assign a moral dimension to what trout did i just think it was a logical dimension to it and yeah the owner if you want to talk about either there's money sloshing around in the Mike Trout fund or money sloshing around in the uh, Artie Moreno fund. Like, why is one better than the other? It's not. I just think it was a logical thing to do.
2: All right. Now it's time for after balls. And uh, the hero of last year's final four, because he happened to have uh, his leg explode, was uh, Kevin Ware, the Louisville guard, went up for a three-pointer. He had his tibia emerge from his body and a Way that uh, is not healthy. Um, but the news came this week that he's transferring from Louisville. Um, he'll be taking his uh, tibia elsewhere. Now firmly ensconced within his body. Mike, you uh, don't believe that we should be calling it his career that he's <laughs> that he's taking uh, elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I think I tweeted, uh, you know, ESPN headline, Kevin Ware to end his career. And by career, you mean all-consuming activity that doesn't pay anything but allows you to occasionally see your tibia. That might have been the 168-character version, but I'm just <laughs> talking now. All right. There were some of the um, universally-acknowledged abbreviations for things like tibia on that
3: tweet, so it was okay. <laughs> it doesn't say where he's transferring. Where's his tibia going?
2: I think we'll have to tune in tomorrow to find out. <laughs> A very special episode of... Where in the world Where, is Kevin Ware's tibia? Jim Gray
3: <laughs> hosting. Jim Gray will be interviewing Kevin Ware's in tibia. World is Kevin Primetime special.
2: Tibia. <laughs> we should note that we're not making fun of Kevin Ware's tibia.
3: No,
0: or the sinew or muscle surrounding Kevin Ware's tibia.
2: All right. What is your tibia of Kevin Ware, Mike Vesca?
0: So in writing, sports writing, all sorts of uh, reporting, there is the concept of the scoop, information that no one knew. But then there is the concept of the intellectual scoop or the idea that no one's had. So I'm going to say that I had one of these. I don't know if it quite gets there, actually. But it was spurred on by Greg Gumbel, a nice man, saying of the University of Tennessee and their exit from the tournament, Tennessee, one of the great stories of this tournament. You know, and my response was... They were good. They were an 11 seed. They won a bunch of games. They were totally underseeded. You know, they shouldn't have been an 11 seed. They played some, you know, like UMass, which was overseeded. They basically lost to the one team they were supposed to lose to in a pretty good game. So that becomes one of the great stories of that tournament. And someone tweeted me, you know, don't be mean. I'm like, I'm not being mean. Just like, How does what University of Tennessee do fit in with the hero has a thousand faces Joseph Conrad model? I don't think it does. I don't think they were a great story. And here's the thing that I started to think about. You know what that's an example of? That's an example of just... If you're hosting the studio show for a sport and you don't know a thing to say, that's the sort of thing you say about the sport. And so I've invented a term for this, and this is the baseline nonsense. Every sport has its baseline nonsense. And the definition of if you wake the guy who's the studio host for that sport out of a dead sleep and shout at them the name of a team or a player that they don't really know about, and he has to just kick it in into baseline nonsense default mode, he'll say things like if it's the NCAA tournament, oh, that he's not just a coach he's a teacher or it's true amateurism at his best they'll definitely say that or you know this is an inspiring story lots of things about stories that's why they call it march madness march madness he'll say that that's the baseline nonsense the baseline nonsense for baseball is grittiness and the the wisdom of these old craggly old managers and also i think baseball more about civic meaningfulness connection to a team in a city so if you wake up a studio strong that's right. You wake up and say, hey, how about the Pirates? Oh, they mean so much to the city. They haven't won in so long. <laughs> and with football baseline nonsense is, hey, one team beat another. What can you tell me? I don't know. I, you just made up the, uh, the manliness, toughness, and also a legacy. Everyone's playing for their legacy. Hey, Every on any sport- given Sunday, Mike. Any given Sunday. So you, Stefan, often talk of narrative. We all do. But I think baseline nonsense is a subset of narrative that is just like the default setting for spewing forth a bunch of stuff that most uh, viewers of the show will say, yeah, that seems pretty good. You can pretty much program a robot with baseline nonsense. And then if you throw it to uh, Chuck or Dan or Coach, they'll definitely have a little more to say about manliness or grittiness or how inspiring
2: everyone is. So I thought that that after ball had great momentum, first of all. Yeah. And I really liked how you established the run. I thought that really set everything else up.
3: These it's kids. It's important to do that. Mike, these kids. What can you say about them? <laughs> just a bunch of kids. You
2: know, I, that's what you remember. At the end of all this, they're just kids. Talk about how you were able to, to pull that afterball together. Just talk about that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Could you talk about <laughs> That's right.
2: Uh, Stefan, what is your uh, Kevin Where's Tibia?
3: Uh, last week I wrote for Slate about a Scrabble legend and a wonderful man named Lester Schoenbrunn, who died last month at age 78. The piece was also about the lost culture of games, specifically the Chess and Checker Club of New York in Times Squared, which was better known as the Flea House. Lester was a regular at the Flea House in the 1960s along with an assorted cast of hustlers and kibitzers. One of them was named Nick the Wrestler. His real name was Cola Quariani, short for Nicolaus. Cola, Kolaus, Nikolaus. He was born in Georgia in Tsarist, Russia in 1903. He was a Greco-Roman wrestler in Europe and a professional wrestler in Europe and the United States. There's a one-minute clip on YouTube of him in the ring in 1934 against a former Olympic gold medalist, Henri Deglan. The website WrestlingData.com says Quariani fought 527 matches from 1928 to 1953 against the likes of Ruffy Silverstein, Mr. Modo, Olaf Olsen, Super Swedish Angel, Slim Zimbelman, and Nikolai Volkov, aka the Bayonne Bombshell, whom I actually remember watching as a kid.
0: From Russia, weighing 242 pounds, wearing black trunks, Kola Quariani! <laughs>
3: That was from a 1955 fight against Gene Stanley, and it's included in one of the top ten matches of the 50s and 60s on the video Wrestling's Greatest Heroes, the Golden Era, which I'm sure Mike watched before going on Jeopardy. Quariani loses, as he did a lot, because he was a Russian, a Georgian, actually, fighter during the Cold War, this time on three body slams and a body press. In a story in the New York Times in 1958, Gay Talese described Quariani as a brutal Georgian who learned wrestling from his mother, a six-foot-three-inch, 205-pounder who learned wrestling from her mother. Coriani worked with Vince McMahon Sr. in the 1950s. He managed a guy named Antonio Roca, an Argentine who drew more than 20,000 fans to Madison Square Garden for a fight in 1960. And he also worked with the legendary Bruno San Martino. He lived in the Holland Hotel on West 42nd Street. A commenter on one wrestling message board remembered the phone number, PL75124, because that was the number all the great wrestlers would call from all over the country and all over the world to talk to Cola about work in New York. But Quariani's biggest fame came not from wrestling, but from chess. Among the Flea House regulars in the 1950s was a young filmmaker named Stanley Kubrick. For his 1956 film The Killing, Kubrick cast Quariani as Maurice, a chess-playing wrestler who's hired to start a fight at a racetrack to distract the cops and enable a robbery. Writing in The Times in 2008, David Mamet called that one of the great talk scenes in movies. It takes place in a fictionalized version of The Flea House, and the fight scene itself is a classic, too. It begins with Maurice at a racetrack bar.
2: Hey, I've had some services, stupid-looking Irish
1: pig. Hey, what's the matter with you?
3: Oh, you stupid-looking Irish pig. Nice. It takes about 20 cops to subdue the back-haired Quarianne. The scene lasts nearly two minutes. Quariani was a tough guy to the end, the end being a day in 1980 when he was walking to the stairs leading up to the flea house as five kids were walking out of the building. According to a chess player, they bumped into each other. Words were exchanged. Nick never took any gruff from anybody and soon he was engaged in a fight with all five at once. Nick probably could still have handled any one or two of them, but five were too many. Nick was beaten beaten to death. He died at a hospital at age 77.
2: Oh, my God. Keeping Why? my run of, of afterball death alive. Why, Stefan? The killing. Jeez. That is dark, man. Dark. I'm in
3: a dark afterball phase. Don't get into Josh. fights,
2: people, yeah. at chess clubs especially. When you're
3: 77. With ruffians. With ruffians. Man. Josh, what's your... Kevin, where's tibia?
2: Oh, my goodness. Gracious. All right. Uh, back in 2004... When I was but a lad, a young writer at Slate, I wrote a piece about the race to be the first man to bench press 1,000 pounds. At that time, Gene Reichlack Jr. had the world record of 965 pounds. But oh, how much has changed in the last decade. Later that year, Reichlack became the Roger Bannister of lying on your back and pressing a half ton of metal a few inches above your hypertrophied pectorals. Benching a record 1,005 pounds. Scott Mendelssohn pushed the record at 1,008, then Rye Schleck did 1,010. Ryan Kennelly went to 10,36, then 10,50, 10,70, 10,75. Finally, this past December 14th, Texan Paul Tiny Meeker bench-pressed 1,102 pounds at a meet sanctioned by the Cajun Hardcore Powerlifting Federation, one of my top few powerlifting federations in Cajun country. Uh, The record has now increased by 300 pounds in the last 15 years. The reason, largely, is the development of something called a bench shirt. As I wrote back in 2004, the bench shirt has arms that jut out zombie-like perpendicular to the chest. The position is awkward and fit so tight that lifters typically need help getting themselves into the shirt. As the bar starts to press the weightlifter's arms down, the load also goes into deforming the shirt. And these shirts are so taut that for the bar to even reach the bencher's chest, the fabric has to be compressed with incredible force. Uh, Reichslack once had to abandon an 890 pound lift because it was not heavy enough to deform his bench shirt and have the weight reach his pectoral muscles. Um, I talked to a bunch of biomechanics professors, physicists, and that sort uh, back in 2004. Uh, One of them told me that he would consider it cheating to wear this shirt because it helps you out mechanically. You might as well have a pulley, he says. Um, The top uh, benchers, the ones who wear the shirts, will all tell you uh, one thing uh, repeatedly. The shirt alone is not going to lift all that weight. And this weight is uh, certainly very heavy. Scott Mendelson told me that when he uh, tries to bench press 1,000 pounds, I can feel my bones flexing. I'm sorry if Kevin Ware is... Listening to this after ball, it must bring back uh, bad memories, Canelli uh, told me the first time he did it he heard a humming noise and had blurred vision. Now, my central nervous system has adapted to it i 'm used to it, so that 's a positive. Um, how much exactly does the shirt help uh, last year, Eric vanilla gorilla Spoto. vanilla gorilla, and tiny you can see like the the movie here, sort of like uh you know the good a good back and forth vanilla gorilla tiny i 'm a tiny. Guy, I'm a, I'm a Vanilla Gorilla supporter. I think it's a buddy picture. It helps if you pronounce it the way like people from Florida pronounce Vanilla. How is that, Mike? Vanilla. Vanilla. Vanilla Gorilla? Yeah. Do you think maybe he'll go up against Grape Ape? Maybe, maybe <laughs> it could be uh, that sort of contest. So anyway, uh, Eric Spoto set the record for a raw bench press uh, that's a lift on without a bench shirt. And that record, anybody want to guess? So if it's 1102 with the shirt, what's the record without the shirt?
0: Mm. Play along at home, listeners. 995.
2: 977. It is 722 pounds. Oh, so, so even, the even the old record was bench shirt. Assistant. It's all bench shirt. It's all shirt. Right. So it, it helps you about 380 pounds right. <laughs> worth. So
0: the, the, I think, that, whole, that whole, you can't do it with the shirt alone. Does that remind you of another argument about <laughs> athletic performance and a substance? Mm.
2: So Spoto is not performing totally raw. The video of him lifting the 722 pounds shows him sniffing something before he lifts. That's ammonia, smelling salts. Uh, the guy who filmed the video explained that it's, it wipes out negative thoughts about whether you can get the lift. Then he goes on to say, mostly because it burns like the F word. And you can't really think of anything else. So if you're trying to lift more than seven hundred pounds, either wear a shirt that assists you mechanically, or just sniff ammonia. Either way, it'll work. Um, good luck to you all. Don't get trapped underweight. Use spotters. Spotters are very important. Couple follow up questions. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. Are all these guys you're talking about American? I believe so. Yes. Yes, because USA. It strikes,
0: USA. <laughs> it just strikes me as the case because. Uh, you know, a European would not respond to a 1,000 pounds. It's just whatever it is in the metric system. <laughs> That's a good so point. Not at all important. Two, don't you think, just like the Sherpas get short shrift with the climbing Everest thing, what about the spotters? I mean, the first guy to spot a 1,000 pounds, that guy deserves a shout-out. And do the spotters, are there spotter shirts? And if not, can we make them?
2: <laughs> Tensignore gay. Spotter. <laughs> We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com i will also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Casey Butterly. Our producer is Mike Follow. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember, Zelmo Beatty, college basketball, Hall of Famer, Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening.